0: Hello, and welcome to Soul Food, the ghost light season, episode 21. So where's everybody been? I've missed you guys. It's a typical July day down here in the lowlands of Richmond, British Columbia, my hometown. Gray, overcast. Nice enough, but a bit of a breeze makes it too chilly to take my gear out on the back deck. Worship band warming up at the Presbyterian Church on the other side of the hedge. Typical Sunday morning. Just like ordinary times. Or... Not so much. The worship band hasn't had occasion to warm up since back in early March. So I guess you'd have to say, quite extraordinary times, in fact. Certainly, I've never lived through anything like this. Have you? If so, I expect you're about 103. How was that whole Spanish flu thing, anyhow? You're still here, so that's some encouragement. Okay, let's go straight to the mailbag. There's one lonely little letter way down there at the bottom. Postmarked July 9th. Oh, it's a long one. Dear Soul Food, any more podcasting soon? And that's from Spanky in North Vancouver. Well, Spanky in North Vancouver, okay, let's. Looks like this is going to be a long one the making up for lost time edition my apologies if it runs a bit long but hey you got a pause button use it i want to play you a tune that i've been looking forward to putting on the show from the very start of this whole ghost light project one day in 2004 i started a playlist of what i wanted to listen to that day And then instead of starting another temporary What I Want to Listen to Today playlist the next time there was a clump of tunes I wanted to listen to that day, I just added those tunes to the top of the playlist I already had. And I continued doing that as the year went along, adding new songs that caught my ear. They could be brand new songs. They could be old songs, old favorites. Didn't matter. Whatever I wanted to listen to, I added it to the top of the list and rearranged the tunes that were already in the playlist so that the ones I most wanted to hear were at the top. Eventually, it occurred to me that I was accumulating a pretty nifty collection of the soundtrack of my year. And as the end of 2004 approached, I realized that with a few tweaks, I could have myself a New Year's Eve Top 100 countdown, just like back in 1968. 1997. The impression I get, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones at 95 on Zed 95.3. I woke up again this morning with the sun in my
1: eyes. When Mike came over with a script surprise. Joni Mitchell never lies. I don't know what you has I can set in
0: So that became a tradition, keeping up a Hot 100 playlist through each year, and then more or less ranking it to mark the turning of the calendar. Though I don't think I've ever actually managed to play through my countdown on New Year's Eve. Someday. All that to say, there's only a handful of tunes that have turned up in multiple years. I've got to listen to a song a lot in a particular year for it to merit a repeat appearance on the annual Hot 100 list. But if it was one of the songs of the year, it goes on there. Well, two of those rare recurring tunes were by the guy who wrote the music that's kind of become our theme song here on the podcast, Nelson Boschman. One of those repeat offenders was Jerusalem Hymn, The other was Song for Ordinary Time. Another Nelson Boschman composition. That's him on the keys with Bria Skonberg playing trumpet before she ran off to the jazz mecca of New York City. Adam Thomas on bass, Kenton Weens on drums. Wonder if his middle name is Stan. And Lance Odegaard on trombone. We'll play something by Mr. Odegaard a little later on the show. Song for Ordinary Time. I don't know about you, but since this whole plague thing really kicked in, don't you find the days kind of drift by, unnumbered? Does anybody really know what time it is? Yesterday my wife wondered if it was Sunday. Nope. Friday. Pretty sure we're in June, though. uh, July. Not many days have something to distinguish them. The date book's mostly empty. The days drift slowly on the page. Bruce Coburn said that. You know, he would have been wrapping up his 50th anniversary tour right about now, except, well, that got canceled. You know how it goes. Okay, in honor of Bruce's long-anticipated tour that never happened mark these extraordinary days of sometimes overwhelming ordinariness. Here's Bruce. (laughs) ¶¶
2: Sunset is an angel weeping Holding out a bloody sword No matter how I squint I cannot Make out what it's pointing toward Sometimes you feel like you've lived too long Days drip slowly on the page You catch yourself Facing the cage I've proven who I am so many times The magnetic strips worn thin And each time I was someone else And everyone was taken in
1: Powers chatter
2: in high places Stir up eddies in the dust of rage me to pacing the cage I never knew what you all wanted so I gave you everything all that I could All the spells that I could sing It's as if the thing were written In the constitution of the age Sooner or later You'll wind up facing the cage. Guide you. You can't see what's round the bend. Sometimes the road leads through dark places. Sometimes the darkness is your friend. Today, these eyes scan bleached out land. For the coming of the outbound stage Facing the cage Facing the cage
0: Top 10 Tunes for 2006. 2006. That was another personal Annas horribilis. Careful of the pronunciation there. Annas horribilis. But you know, thinking back to 2006, the first of two back-to-back hell years, as I thought of them, I also realize now these things pass. And I also see that The bad stuff is never the whole story. In the middle of 2006, a bright particular star. One of the greatest experiences of my life. 2007, a couple friends took me to New York City for the first time. And I started photography. So, 2020, show us what you got. And the fact is, the worship band is warming up again at the church on the other side of the hedge, tomorrow morning the Presbyterians will be singing together again, for the first time in God knows how long. And weather permitting, I'll be out on my back deck listening to them sing. Here's Lance Odegaard.
1: Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn through the storm. Me on to the light. Take my hand, precious floor. Lord, and lead me
0: home. Lance Odegaard from his 2008 recording, After a long, hard winter, it's good to go home. I don't have any way to check this, but the story about that tune, as I heard it, is that when it came time to record that Thomas Dorsey masterpiece, it was a sweltering hot day. And producer Jonathan Anderson just sat Lance down with his guitar in front of a microphone and recorded the tune. In my unverifiable memory, they weren't even in the studio. Maybe in a laundry room? Because the acoustics were right? And in the dark in that close, sweaty, closed-in little room that might just as well have been in Mississippi or Memphis, Tennessee, Lance just whispered out that tune. Now, I've never been much of an Elvis fan, not since that one pretty good record he made with Scotty Moore and Bill Black back in 1954 in July at Sun Studios in Memphis. Oh, yeah, I also liked his very strange Blue Moon that my friend Paul turned me on to. Okay, and there's that uh, 50s-era single of Heartbreak Hotel given to me by the Jesse-winning Rick Sonic Genius Colquhoun. It used to be his dad's. It has this strange metal center that stamped Webster Chicago Corporation and then on the B-side, patent applied for And I have to admit, that record's got a lot of that same pared-down, raw quality of The Sun Sessions. I do love that little single, so I think I've got some early Elvis investigating ahead of me. Another Prejudice Bites the Dust. Anyhow, I've got to think that Mr. Odegaard had Mr. Presley in his head when he recorded that sublime Take My Hand, Precious Lord, you just heard about 51 years after Elvis sang the tune for his mama on January 13, 1957, two days before I was born. As I mentioned, Jonathan Anderson produced Lance's rendition, and it happens that John recorded his own treatment of another good old song just for me, and he gave that to me for my 50th birthday. 49 years, 363 days after Elvis recorded Blue Moon. (laughs) I was going to save this next tune for a special road food edition of the podcast I've got planned, but forget about it. This seems like the moment. I'm not sure anybody else has ever heard this recording. Except me and Jonathan.
1: The long and winding road That leads to your door
0: Something to make your day a little less ordinary. The song's familiar enough, but a recording you've never heard before, that maybe only two people have ever heard before. Thanks, Jonathan. So, ordinary time. In the Christian year, ordinary time refers to all the days of the year that aren't Advent or the Christmas season or Lent or the Easter season. Then 50 days after Easter, you got Pentecost, and the next day, we're back to ordinary time. So as eager as I was to play you Nelson's song for Ordinary Time in these extraordinary ordinary times, I wanted to wait until we got back to proper ordinary time before I played it for you. This year, Pentecost was May 31st, which happened to be the date of my last podcast. I was just kidding about this being episode 21. It it would have been if things had proceeded according to precedent, but Thea and Rosa and Tony arrived, and then the world just kept blowing up after the murder of George Floyd, and then the theater community kind of blew up, and I just didn't feel like making podcasts for a while there, or posting on Facebook, or doing anything much except to listen to the voices churning around inside or alternately trying to quiet down everything that was churning around inside every minute of every day and every night, you know how it gets sometimes. Maybe you've been through a pandemic and a revolution yourself at some point and lived to tell about it, as we do. So by the time Ordinary Time started up again this year, I didn't feel much like posting my flippant, fairly often silly, or at least peculiar podcast. And I certainly didn't feel at all like turning it into a place to make political statements. I mean, who the hell wants to hear what I got to say about a plague of violence against black and indigenous and Latino men and women that goes back way before this current little coronavirus blip. Way, 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 way back. At least 528 years. But who's counting? So I didn't feel much like saying anything or making a whole lot of art. But I did a lot of listening. We all have been, haven't we? To Those voices churning around inside me, but to other voices too. Nina Simone, for one. Backlash Blues. And this one.
3: voice told thy love to me, but I long to rise in the arms of faith, be closer. Blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died, draw me nearer, Never blessed Lord, to thy ever- Hope, my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. I
0: Thanks, Nina. I needed that. June was a rough month, wasn't it? Things aren't fixed yet, obviously. These are still extraordinary times and extraordinarily difficult, except what I've been reading and thinking about says that no, they're not actually so extraordinary at all. Plagues and Oppressive regimes and riots and revolution and people finding a way through it all somehow. Those aren't extraordinary times at all. They're ordinary. They're the whole reason we needed Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter and Pentecost in the first place. So it ain't fixed yet. Still a pandemic. Still racism and struggle and pain. But on this ordinary Saturday in July, the Presbyterians are singing again. And over in England, they're playing football again. Liverpool are finally champions after a 30-year wait. But who's counting? Except everybody in Liverpool. And tomorrow night, I'm going back to the movies. Going out to the movies. Vertigo at the Rio which Sight and Sound magazine crowned the greatest film of all time, playing at the theater that I dubbed to be Vancouver's greatest vintage movie palace since The Ridge. I saw Vertigo years ago, and I didn't like it. So why on earth would I go see it again? Because Andre Rublev. Because Joni Mitchell's Mingus album. And because Frank Sinatra. And because The Godfather. Things I didn't like or that I full-on disliked when I first encountered them. But I figured there must be something there. It wasn't their fault I didn't like them. The shortcoming wasn't in the art. It was in me. And now Mingus and the Godfather and Frank, the music, not the man, and especially Andre, are in my personal artistic hall of fame. I gave them time. I checked in again every few years, and eventually, bam, favorite. Just took me a while to clue in. Especially Andrei Rublev. My two list-making, all-time fave-quoting movie buddies, whose movie tips were always on the money, had the same number one unquestioned favorite film of all time on their lists. And they keep lists. Andre Rublev by Andre Tarkovsky. Andre by Andre. So I figured I should watch that movie, and eventually I did. I waited for a chance to see it on the big screen and finally saw a beautifully restored print at the Vancouver Film Festival Theater. And I almost died. It was so boring. Three hours and twenty-five excruciating minutes worth of boring. But Mel and Peter loved it, so I got the DVD and watched it again. What was the deal here? Anyhow, there's hardly any dialogue. All those Russian monks looked the same. Which one was Andrei Rublev? Scenes went on and on and on and made no sense. And what was with the guy, those guys in the balloon at the beginning, anyhow? Which one of them was Andrey Rublev? I had no idea. 205 more minutes of that. And then it was on the syllabus for a course at Regent College, so I watched it again. All this was spread over a couple of years. Hey, I needed time to recover. This time I watched it in chunks, like you'd read a novel. Not all in one mind-numbing go. And this time I allowed myself to cheat. And I read about each section as I reached it. Finally figured out who these dreary Russian-looking people were. Which one was Andrei Rublev? Which ones in which scenes had actually been in a prior scene? And as it came into focus, the penny dropped, finally, about 600 minutes into my 16-course dinner with Andre, this was my movie. This was about why you make art, regardless of whether anybody's watching. Why you make art even if the world is falling apart. Why you have to make art, even when it seems like there's no point or there are better things to do. Andrei Rublev, The Masterpiece by Andrei Tarkovsky. Andrei by Andrei. The Russian title is The Passion of Andrei Rublev, and I think it's about the passion of both Andres. People driven to make art, consumed by art-making, but in terrible, terrible times. Both Christians, as it happens, and both making their art in times when that wasn't exactly popular or safe. Andrei Tarkovsky made his film in Brezhnev's Soviet Russia, his film about the great Christian icon maker at a time when Christian voices were silenced in the Soviet Union. A little spoiler alert warning here for you, I'm going to summarize the film a little bit here. If you want to check the movie out for yourself without knowing what's going to happen, all three and a half hours of it. Just uh, jump ahead to about the 41 minute and 45 second mark. You'll be just fine. Andrei Tarkovsky's masterpiece is about Andrei Rublev in the 15th century when the Tatars ravaged Russian towns. We see an unbearable extended sequence where they invade the town of Vladimir, destroying buildings, raping women, Slaughtering people in the streets. Burning a church that's filled with Andrei Rublev's art, which he sees going up in flames. They torture the bishop's messenger to death. For 15 years after that, Andrei is silent. He paints nothing, makes no icons. He doesn't even speak. 15 years of war and brutality and plague... And he can't bring himself to say a word, not with his voice and not with his art. Then he watches a young man, a peasant, laboring to cast a massive church bell. It takes a full year. And when that bell rings, Andre speaks for the first time You cast bells. I will paint icons. Now, saying all this, I feel ridiculous, as though I'm saying that my little podcast or my Facebook posts have anything to do with the masterworks of either Andrei Rublev or Tarkovsky, as if my own small discomfort this past month bears any comparison with life in the 15th century or 20th century Russia. Now, I tell this story only to say, thinking about that film yesterday, I realized it was time to wake up and get back to work. Maybe the world doesn't need me to make my little podcast or my peculiar movie montages, but I do. I really do. So, back to the podcast and back to the movies. Let's see what Alfred Hitchcock has for me this time around. And even if Vertigo is still just as boring as it was the first time, who cares? I'll be in a theater again.
4: Hello, I'm Joe Morgenstern, the film critic of the Wall Street Journal. All my life, my movie-watching life, I mean, I've tried to see the big picture, not the larger meaning of it all, though sometimes that, too... But the big picture up there on a theatre screen rather than the little picture on a home TV. Like a moth to a projector, I've been drawn to huge images that take you out of yourself by banishing everything else from your consciousness. Now most theatres are closed, many may not reopen, I'm reviewing streaming content from home, and big pictures are a forbidden pleasure that I miss terribly. Not that all is lost. My consolations include the TV in my living room, a 50-inch OLED flat panel with stunning clarity and color, and a surround sound system with a piano black subwoofer that looks as good as it woofs. There's also my iPad with a so-called retina display that displays some of the truest, sharpest images my retinas could have envisioned from such a featherweight gizmo. Actually, my sense of loss varies. Sometimes the notion of going out to a movie theater seems like a dream from a previous life. Then I wonder if I'm being seduced by all these convenient gizmos to the point of betraying my true love. I believe in the church of baseball, Susan Sarandon's Annie Savoy says at the beginning of Bull Durham. I've believed in the church of theatrical exhibitions. Now I'm flirting with tablets. The question, of course, is whether movie theaters will survive, and not just survive the pandemic, but the streaming revolution that started well before the coronavirus struck. It's a revolution that's become a way of life since we started sheltering in place. Because if we want to be honest about it, all this sexy tech gives us a very good way to watch movies, if not the best way. I'm a child of the movie palaces. I can't believe that all of the big-screen glory will be swept away by the digital stream, and it won't be, of course. The studios will keep setting up their tent poles as long as they can. Independent theaters face a bleak future because specialty channels are opening the curtain ever more widely on indie films and cinema history. Still, our human need to congregate will keep driving us to populate a declining number of multiplexes for years to come. It's a time of bewildering transition for the movies, along with everything else. I know I'll be watching more and more films at home and even liking it. But when the world opens up again, and the Arrow Theater opens up again and shows a 70 millimeter print of 2001 A Space Odyssey or Lawrence of Arabia again, I'll be at the head of the line. I'm Joe Morgenstern. I'll be back on KCRW next week with more reviews.
0: I wanted to introduce you all to my favorite film writer, Joe Morgenstern. I have an uneasy relationship with critics, film critics, theater critics, even people who just like to criticize in general. We've become a generation of critics, haven't we? But I have found a way through the tangled underbrush of movie criticism. Find somebody you like and take their advice. If you find somebody whose tastes line up with yours, whose sensibility and maybe even their spirit seems akin to yours— Stick with them. And for me, that somebody is Uncle Joe. He's a gifted writer. I love hearing what he's got to say about movies, even the ones I'll never see. But he's also a gifted watcher. Joe appreciates movies. And by that, I mean he celebrates what's fine in a film. And I mean that when he talks about a film... His observations increase its value, appreciation. You look through his eyes, and you see better. He does a weekly review for KCRW in Santa Monica, one of my favorite radio stations. It kept me going during a summer spent literally in the desert between terms at Cal Arts, and it figures prominently in my play The Top Ten Thousand of All Time. If you don't happen to live near Los Angeles, you can listen to his weekly review on his podcast, Film Reviews by Joe Morganstern. You can also read him in the Wall Street Journal if you want to pay for a subscription, but I'd rather just listen to Joe talk. What a guy. Speaking of the Church of Baseball, as he was, I should let you know that I'm cooking up a special edition of the Soul Food Ghost Light podcast along the lines of the Easter Presents shows back in April, but this time it's about baseball. We're coming up on what would have been the all-star break, though if you don't have baseball, you don't have stars, and you don't need a break, but I wanted to celebrate the great game with a version of an anthology show we did at Pacific Theater back in the spring of 1998. Nine innings of glorious baseball writing, mixed in with some swell baseball tunes. I'll need to make sure I get Susan Sarandon into the studio for that. And speaking of 2001, A Space Odyssey, as he was, I got a nifty little closer for today's movieish show. When I was talking about Andrei Rublev, I I mentioned a couple of my list-making, all-time fave-quoting movie buddies, Mel and Peter. The latter of those is Mr. Peter Norman, who also compiles a Hot 100 list of his favorite tunes every year. We swap CD samplers from those every year. Remember CDs? And who refreshes his Top 100 movie list at least annually, sometimes quarterly. He's not my brother from another mother. He's my identical twin from another mother. Anyhow, me and Peter were swapping frivolous, movie-obsessed emails, and he told me the story of poor Alex North, who composed the musical score for Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. What? I hear you saying. I thought Johann Strauss composed that. Or or was it his brother, Richard Strauss, or Richard Strauss? Strauss, or was was he like his nephew or great-nephew once removed or something like that? Well, you're right. Something like that. See, Alex North did the music for Kubrick's Sandals and Bathrobes extravaganza, Spartacus. So Stan hired him to do the same for his new sci-fi flick that he had up his sleeve. Mr. North composed 40 minutes of music in two weeks' time. Under the overwhelming pressure, Alex's back spasmed and he had to be taken to the recording session in an ambulance. He was in so much pain that Henry Brandt, his longtime orchestrator, conducted the orchestra. But while good old Al was agonizing away on his lifetime masterwork, the score to 2001, Mr. Kubrick kind of fell in love with the temporary tracks he had been working with during filming and editing. So when it came time to actually do the final cut, with the real music and everything, well, he kind of just stuck with the Strauss. And he kind of just forgot to mention that small detail to poor Alex North, the composer. Like, he didn't even quite get around to telling the guy that his music wasn't in the picture right up to the big public premiere of the movie. It slowly dawned on Alex as he sat in the theater and watched Kubrick's images and listened to somebody else's music. Stanley Kubrick. What a guy. Relational skills of a tarantula. So here's my movie pal Peter Norman and his flight of fancy, imagining the worst night in the life of Alex North.
5: i just imagine cheerfully settling into your seat, date in tow, excited chatterers all around, paparazzi bulbs a-poppin', all the elements of a big night, and then that first epic music sting with Richard Strauss, and thinking like, oh, Okay, well, that's fine. I did write a really good theme for this part. Let's just let the movie play out and... Oh, wait. Is that spaceship docking to the strains of Johann Strauss? It's me, Alex. So, about that movie I mentioned, I'm not so sure you should go see it with Mimi this Friday after all. It's a bit, well, maybe not your cup of tea, and uh, I guess maybe they, my music, uh, not so much. Not so prominent, I mean. More like totally absent. Plus, the picture stinks and is really boring.
6: End of messages.
5: But I keep thinking about a life devoted to music, an early fixation perhaps on the work of Dvorak, a fierce yearning to make art like that, an age-inappropriate crush on your piano teacher who has a heavy accent and a name like Mrs. Zawadzka and always smells like her last cigarillo. Awaiting with unbearable anticipation the delivery of the blank staves you ordered from a music supply store in Chicago, because the ideas you have just won't be contained by the staves already on hand. All of which will come to its pinnacle tonight, the unveiling of your magnum opus. Agonizing over what to wear, settling at last on the slightly rakish teal bow tie, since, hey, you may as well rock a look to match the moment. Ordering the driver to pull over a couple couple blocks before the uptown, so you can enjoy a brief stroll in Cleveland Park in early spring and savor, as you draw nearer, the queuing throngs and well-heeled folk stepping from limos. Spotting Arthur C. Clarke in the lobby and scurrying over to say hi, only to be met with a look of blank unrecognition. For about three seconds in the opening moments of the dawn of time sequence, a hair gets caught in the projector. Oh well, you think, nothing in life is perfect. Always gotta be a fly in the ointment. But man, it's gonna have to be one whopper of a fly to ruin tonight's sweet, sweet ungent. Suddenly remembering that troublesome section early in the opening theme, where the woodwinds had difficulty synchronizing on a particularly vigorous and, dare you say it, blazingly innovative passage you'd given them, and wondering whether the final mix will have smoothed it over. Only to be yanked from such thoughts by the unexpected strains of Richard Strauss. glamorous internationally renowned violinist, only to watch that hand as the film progresses, gradually extricate itself and slide away. Wondering whether she now thinks, A, you lured her here on false pretenses, there never was a score, or B, you're a plagiarist. Dearly needing to pee halfway through the flick, how long is this damn thing anyway? But thinking, no, any minute now my music will come in, I can't miss it. Remembering, as Hal dutifully murders astronauts, how it was just last night that you finally got around to answering the growing stack of letters from your bedridden aunt in Pittsburgh. Except pretty much everything you wrote was about tonight and how much you were looking forward to it. You're gonna have to tear it up and start again all over. Just being alive in 1968 with its rotary phones and handwritten correspondence from bedridden aunts living in a world so bereft of history and experience that it hasn't yet undergone The Godfather, Disco, the rise and fall of Anthony Weiner, 9-11, the iPad, the cinema of Michael Bay. To this point, human experience has consisted basically of the Dark Ages, a couple of Mozart symphonies, the Spanish Civil War, and the release of Billy Wilder's The Apartment being blissfully unaware that a six-year-old boy currently living in Syracuse will grow up to fix the camera with his smoldering eyes and say, You had me at hello. Seeing the number 2001 on screen, and having more or less the same relationship to it as later audiences will to the 2049 in Blade Runner 2049, being totally unaware that, more than fifty years from now, your present humiliation will give some dude in Etobicoke the inspiration to procrastinate his daily novel writing quota by writing about you instead. Remembering that you dedicated the score to your late father, who wasn't much for displays of affection, but did once tell you he was proud of you this after you hit a ground rule double in peewee despite your severely underdeveloped upper arms. Wondering what was so fucking great about all those Strauss boys anyway, speculating on their upper arm strength. Trying your best to gun it through the crowded lobby at film's end, only to be cornered by a roving TV reporter. And what was your role in tonight's motion picture, sir? Music. Sorry, could you speak up for the camera? Music. I did the music. Ooh, yes, the music was terrific, sir. Very stirring. Very well selected. What did you do exactly? Conducting? Performing? I... sorry, listen, I've got to run. I have to, uh, go to the after-party. Trying to recall if anyone actually said anything about an after-party. Later, reading in Variety magazine that yes, they did, and wow, was that party a humdinger but they somehow neglected to mention it to you. Falling asleep, weeping to a record of unchained melody, which you wrote, so don't go feeling too sorry for yourself.
0: It's a cruel, cruel world, same as it ever was. Just ask Alex North, or Andre Rublev, or, oh, anybody who happens to be living through a global pandemic. Is that redundant? Like, if it's a pandemic, isn't it by definition global? Oh, well, Department of Redundancy Department. That's it for today's edition of Soul Food, The Ghost Light Season. Mr. Brooks Williams, take us home.
7: This world is not my home, oh, I'm just passing through. Treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue the angels beckon me from heaven's open door and i can't feel at home in this world anymore i have a love in way up in glory land don't expect to stop until i shake her hand. she's waiting